So today we're going to dig into another one of these parables of Jesus. There's about 40 of them, these everyday stories or word pictures, and they made sense to the people Jesus was talking to. And as we've talked about over the, the past weeks, Jesus transitioned in the latter part of his ministry to utilize these stories because they related to the entire spectrum of the culture and the world that he was talking with. And often the people who felt the most disconnected or even the most rejected from the Jewish religious structure, they were the ones that were coming to hear these stories and they were attracted to Jesus. They connected with these stories he's told. And the religious leaders, we see them off in the periphery and they're, they're upset and they're angry and they're not happy at all that the people who felt the most disconnected from what they taught felt the most connected to what Jesus was saying and even in the stories, Jesus was relating to them and relating them to his spiritual kingdom. These parables taught about some of the heroes, the protagonists of the stories were the marginalized and the rejected in the culture. And yet these stories presented those characters with grace and hope and peace. And it caused the people hearing them to feel grace and hope and peace towards God's kingdom. And that was very different. It was the opposite of how they seem to feel within that Jewish legalistic religious structure. So today we're going to look at one of the stranger parables in our estimation. It's really, it's not even that we would say it's an anti-parable, but it, it's a messy parable. It presents real life in the real world. And it honestly would speak to all of us today. And you'll see it's going to speak to you just as it spoke to the people in Jesus's day it portrays this middle management type of guy. And this guy is really out to save his own skin. He's about to lose a very lucrative job in life that he's had. And so this, this guy does some really unethical things. And the thing about this parable that we would say, some people would relate to it almost as an anti-parable, unlike most of the ones we've looked at already, there's not an altogether good person or a prime example in this parable. In fact, if we're honest about it, everyone in this parable is somewhat messed up and has their own agenda in this one. They're all going to be willing to do what they can get away with so they can get ahead. Do you see why this made sense to Jesus' audience and makes sense to us today? And in fact, the dishonest manager, the one we're going to talk about today, he's so slick He's so scheming and conniving. There's just not a whole lot of good things you could say about him. He's just a bad guy and he has a plan. He's hatched this plan and everyone else in the story to one degree or another, they're somewhat enablers or even accomplices to his misdeeds, to his plan. And yet Jesus wants us to see in this parable he, he wants us to see that, yet, that God is going to use this to tell us something about our hearts and his kingdom. And he's going to do this in a very unexpected way through a plot twist because the, the master in the story, the owner of the business, the manager was running, who is perhaps the closest to a hero if there is one in the story, he actually ends up commending this dishonest manager for his shrewd dealings. So Jesus' audience, who deals with the dishonesty in their world, 
the occupying Roman forces who taxed them so unfairly, the authoritarian nature of the Sanhedrin, the ruling political and religious culture, and those are the people Jesus dealt with so often. They understood. They understood that as the Roman forces occupied, as there was danger all around, they had a sense of lockdown, we might say, which is something we talk about in our world this day, and they wanted to see things happen. They wanted to see some things change. And yet the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling people, they had an agenda. They had a plan as well. And they were even using the turmoil and uncertainty of their world to get things done, to see things change their way. In some ways, their world was very much like our world today. So as we enter into the story, we understand much of the frustration they would understand in their world as we're in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. Yet Jesus commands us to learn about the kingdom of God in the midst of these unusual circumstances. So we're going to enter into this parable, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. And as we do this, we're going to think about this in everyday life and everyday terms. And this manager who gets ahead at other people's expense, even if I'm saying that to you today, you might be thinking of something from your life. You might be thinking of a, a work situation or someone you've known or someone you know, and you think, oh, it just reminds me of, of so-and-so. But let God's Spirit guide you into the deeper kingdom principles in the midst of this very unique parable. So let's read Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And you have, if, if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. He told them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting 
in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. We see familiar paradigms and familiar relationships as we've been looking at these parables. All the different parts of society have come out to to hear Jesus as he's teaching, but we see here in the very first verse that he is directly uh, talking to his disciples. He wants them to learn, yet we know the religious leaders are there listening and others are there likely listening as well. And the religious leaders, they don't like what Jesus is saying. If we go towards the end of verse 14, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. Now, there's some powerful motivation revealed here. The Pharisees, they liked money and they scoffed at Jesus. What a strange word. I don't know about you. I don't think I've ever used the word scoff in my life. Maybe if you're a big fan of Victorian literature and uh, fancy people and those kind of people that have finger sandwiches and hold out their pinky when they drink very small uh, teacups. If you're, if you're in that kind of a crowd, maybe scoffing is a, a common word for you. I, I don't use it very often. So what does it mean to say they scoffed at Jesus? We often think of a scoff as maybe a noise, a harumph or something. But this word here in the original language in the Greek, it literally means they turned up their nose at Jesus. Hmm. This is similar to the word that is used when Jesus is on the cross as they look at him. They're looking down at Jesus. They're taking issue with Jesus. They're completely and utterly furious with Jesus. They don't like what he's saying and what he's teaching. And we understand here that the passage tells us it's because they, they loved money. So they reacted because he's talking about heart issues and heart motivations. And what was at the root of their heart? They loved money. They loved what it provided. That's what they were all about. And while this parable touches on money, it's going to talk about, it's going to take us to somewhere even deeper in ourselves than just money. So hang in there as we talk about this. Let's set the stage for what we've just read. There's a manager, even a, a, a vice president, a head of operations, and that he's in trouble with the, the business owner, the CEO, the big boss, has caught wind that he's squandering the opportunities and the material wealth entrusted to him. Maybe somebody snitched. Maybe there were just some other indicators or the... The owner had been away and he came back and he noticed some things. He's squandered these opportunities, this dishonest manager, in a most significant way. Uh, worse than the front office of the Cleveland Browns and all their coaches for the last decade. However many dozens of people that would be. Sorry, Browns fans, I couldn't resist. But he's, he's done a terrible job. An absolutely horrible job with what's been entrusted to him and so the owner, the master, calls in the dishonest manager into a, a boardroom scene straight out of reality TV. And, and look that the dishonest manager notice here that he, he doesn't say anything. When he's faced with this accusation, and as we're going to see, it's quite an accusation, his silence is almost a guilty plea. He says nothing. And yet, after this, we have sort of this monologue as if uh, from a Shakespearean play like Othello or, or something like that, if you're familiar, we get this exposition, this, this uh, personal account from the heart of this dishonest guy. He tells us what's going on and what he's going to do. And he's cooked up 
quite a plan. And, and we know that he's lost a lot of money because of the scale of the debts that are forgiven here. And the, the owner must have been very, uh, the master must have been very hands-off. A lot of money has been mishandled here. Unbelievable wealth has been lost and is lost in the scheme hatched by this dishonest manager. So in verse 2, the actual accusation, and it's a terrible accusation that's made. Verse 2, so we called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. So the accusation that's made here, the word that's used is diabolo, which in the Greek, that's where we get our word diabolical from this. So it's not just that he was the inept manager. He was the dishonest. He was the diabolical manager. He, he had a, a Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme. Do you remember Bernie Madoff from the news? He had a, a Ponzi scheme. He was out, you know, ripping off old ladies like he was the um, Jesus's day's version of the Wolf of Wall Street kind of a character. There's nothing that's good about this guy. He's kind of loathsome even. And so he gets called into the boardroom and he's fired. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. I had to do that. But if you think about it, it makes sense. He, he's not just doing a bad job. He's purposely, maliciously even doing bad things. And the manager, he knows he's in trouble. And the boss says to him, the owner says, get the books and meet me there. You're not my manager anymore. You're fired. He has very little time. Very little time to operate. And so we get this uh, soliloquy, this little internal monologue that he has in verse 3. Then the manager said to himself, what will, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. Now this manager, he had everything under the master's uh, care he, he lived in the master's home. He had the, the master's goods. He had access to all of his wealth, to everything. It was all entrusted to him. And yet he gave it all away. And you think about, you know, first of all, who's the guy that entrusts all this to someone and never checks up on them? I, I think if you remember 80s TV, do you remember the old show Magnum P.I. where Higgins ran this guy Robin's uh, house and, and Magnum, Thomas Magnum and Higgins lived there and there's Ferraris and this beautiful house in Hawaii and you wonder, who is this dude that lets these guys just have all of this stuff, like all of this wealth and all of this opulence? And if you never watched Magnum P.I., I feel bad for you. But anyhow, just imagine having the, the, you know, the nicest car, Maserati, a Ferrari, whatever that is for you, um, whatever that is, a classic you wanted. And the home and all this stuff was entrusted to you and you misused, you kind of just took it all for granted and you actually used it to get ahead at the expense of the guy biting the hand that fed you, get, you know, at the expense of the one that had given you this vast wealth. And this guy, his heart's revealed here in this monologue. He doesn't want to work. Maybe he couldn't work. He wasn't strong enough. He's too old. We don't know. But he says, I don't want to be a laborer like those vineyard workers we talked about last week, working six to six for one denarius, because I have no interest in that. And I don't want to be a beggar, but you know what? I've got a plan. I think of the old Looney Tunes cartoon with uh, Wiley E. Coyote, super genius, when he goes, oh, you're so smart. I can imagine this guy almost congratulating himself at how he's come up with the perfect scheme, one last scheme, and he's got to act fast. The dishonest manager, he does 
what he feels he has to do. And his heart motivation is laid bare. He's going to get ahead by any means necessary. It doesn't matter how it affects other people. He just wants to get what he can while he can. You see why this story makes so much sense to us and why it made so much sense in Jesus' day. People are people. We can relate to this story. Perhaps now in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, we relate to it even more. And so what's happening here in the midst of this? What's going on? The manager doesn't want to lose his status. He doesn't want to lose his power, his prestige. He doesn't want to lose the safety and security of all the wealth and opulence that he's enjoyed. So he launches this plan to get some people in his pocket while he can. And in fact, he doesn't just want one nice place to crash. He wants multiple nice places to crash. And, you know, I thought of like Kato Kato Kalin from the O.J. Simpson trial. This He's a freeloader. He wants to live in the guest house in some mansion somewhere. And not just one. He wants to have a bunch of options, a bunch of opportunities, a bunch of people that owe him in his pocket. So look at verses 5 through 8. He contacts the business associates of the master. Even before, he's already been faced with his accusation, and so he's got nothing to lose. He contacts these guys, because he's going to bring the books back. The master's going to find out. And he goes to them anyhow, and he plays this one last gambit, this one last gamble. He pushes all of his chips into the middle of the table, so to speak. Verses 5 through 8. So he summoned each one of the master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil. Take your invoice. He sit down and write 50. Next he asked another. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. So let's evaluate. We're going to pretend we're on a, a maybe a, a business report on a news channel. Let's evaluate the deals that were made today as we look at this. The deals he struck. So the, the master is owed 100 measures of olive oil. And the dishonest manager goes to the person that owes the master and gives him a 50% discount. Now, what's 100 measures of olive oil in the Bible? What does that even mean? That would probably be about 1,000 gallons of olive oil. It would take hundreds and hundreds of olive trees, whole groves full of olive trees, like the, the garnet semony, whole groves of, our, of olive trees. It would take Lots and lots of them. It was considerable money, probably three to five years worth of wages. Three to five years worth of, of income. The master was going to lose that much for what he had discounted. A 50% discount. And of course, the man that's given, hey, would you like a 50% discount? He signs on it right away. And this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And we hear another one. We get the idea the manager went to everybody that was owed, but he starts with the big fish. He goes to another one. How much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. That would be eight to ten years worth of labor on about a hundred acres of farmed land. That's a massive amount of money. And so he gets, but he gets a 20% discount. He says, you know, cross it out, write it down. He's not a hundred measures. Well, you just owe 80. And so, of course, both men, both of those who owed the master, gladly sign off. They're accomplices. They, they don't ask, hey, why would, you, why would your master do this? They say, you, you, you represent the boss? That's great. I'm going to sign off on this right away. They don't ask what would motivate the master. They just take the deal. It's too good to be true, but they're going to say yes 
They're going to say yes because they too want to get ahead. And of course, later on when this manager is homeless in a society that's built around honor, uh, that's built around generosity, he knows how he's going to cash in. Now, if you don't know the name Ken Bailey, he was a great Bible scholar from uh, near where I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. He was an expert on first century Jewish culture, probably the world expert on it. And he tells us, Ken Bailey tells us, there's three things that the, uh, the master, the owner of the business could really do here in that culture. And these things would be bumbling, these, these would be rattling around in the back of Jesus's audience. They'd all be hearing this story thinking, man, what? I know what he could do. Three options he had. The first option, he'd go to the leaders, whether it's in a large city like Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, or whether it's a local magistrate or the village council, he could go to them and he could proclaim that he did not authorize these settlements and he could prosecute the dishonest manager. Of course, if he did that, he would collect the money owed to him. He would get those debts restored to where they once were. But everyone would see him as a nasty, heartless guy. And in the same way, they'd still see the dishonest manager as Robin Hood. And he would still, in some ways, cushion his fall from grace that way. So in that way, it would really hurt the, the public perception of this large, successful man. And it really wouldn't help him out in some ways. The second option is he could prosecute this man, this dishonest manager. The master could sue the dishonest manager and actually cause he and any family he had to be uh, indentured servants, to be made slaves. And they would be slaves for as long as it took to pay back the debts that were written down and the money that was mismanaged. It probably would take them the rest of their lives. And that happened and that was a commonplace practice and it would be the most common thing that would happen culturally here because it most focuses most of the blame on the person who caused the trouble and the dishonest manager. It would, of course, there would be collateral damage to the, the, any family this man had. If he had any immediate family, they would also be enslaved. But he would hold that person accountable, and that's what they would expect to see happen. And lastly, the manager. Getting ahead here could actually have put the master in such a situation, the master could just play along. He could just take the significant loss from these write-downs, but yet he would be seen as the most generous man in the community around him. The most generous of all, and in that case, he would win, and in some ways, the manager would win as well. He had actually put the master in a pretty difficult situation. And in the end, the master chooses number three. Exactly what he does is he commends the dishonest manager. This is the plot twist. Who would have seen this coming? He's lost all this money, and yet he says he commends him in verses 8 and 9. Look here. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth, so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. So what is this parable teaching us? Is this Jesus' own form of a Dale Carnegie program, how to win friends and influence people? But yes, I guess it is in some ways, but no, it's far more and far deeper than that. 
we would think the manager would want to run, would be run out of town by the master, that he would be chased out of town, that you'd maybe see the master chasing him with an ax or something, just so angry at him for what he had done. Is Jesus telling us to get involved in shady business deals and say, Jesus would be proud of how slick I was in getting that done? Well, that's not at all, I think, what he's saying. And, and of course, if you're a Christian, if you're into God's word, you know Jesus isn't saying that. He's not telling them that they should be sneaky. So what is he telling them? Notice here first, Jesus isn't saying, I praise the shrewd manager for his dishonesty. Jesus is somewhat saying through the master in the story, I know you're dishonest, but I am impressed with how shrewd you were and how you pulled this off and how you focused all this. You went all in. You had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And you pulled off a great deal. As a great business owner and a great successful man, the entrepreneurial, the, the, the pulling off the deal, the art of the deal of this to him, it meant something. He said, hmm, wow, that was quite a maneuver that you just launched there. The manager is on the brink of losing everything. And so instead of risking it on something that's temporary or blowing it as he had been, he learned, he evolved, he changed his strategy. He had a strategy and he bet in particular on something in the future. Now notice in particular in verse 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's directly addressing them. He's teaching them to make eternal decisions about material things, whatever they've been entrusted with, whatever material wealth, whatever they practically have, whatever opportunities they have, they are to build eternal relationships. Because remember what it says there in verse 9, that you would be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is about something beyond the everyday, beyond just the material. Jesus here is challenging heart motivation. We watched a video at the open today in honor of Memorial Day, and I invite you to take a, a moment of silence. Memorial Day, you should take one minute of silence to remember those who have said yes to giving of themselves greatly and even making the supreme sacrifice for the freedoms and opportunities that we all enjoy. They said yes, the video talked about. And for us, the question is, what do we say yes to? Not just to saving our own skin, that's not what we're to be about, but yet what do we value? What are we going to go all in on in our world? What will we push all the chips to the center of the table for? Jesus is here telling them, telling the disciples in regards to the kingdom of God, he's out ushering in a new reality, a lasting and eternal kingdom, something of eternal value. And the Pharisees they are not interested in building God's kingdom. In fact, Jesus comes after them again and again because they're not building God's kingdom. They're building their own. That's what they're about. In verse 15, they scoff at Jesus and, and they're scoffing at him and they want power and prominence and seats of honor. In other places, Jesus says, that's all that you want in the gospels. He says, that's all that matters to you guys. You don't understand it. And Jesus is reminding everyone, including the religious leaders that are hearing this teaching, he's reminding them that those sorts of things they just don't last. That's what the dishonest manager had just learned and he'd come up with a new understanding, a new strategy, a new way to look at things. He makes an essential pivot in his heart. He strategically seeks something that lasts beyond that moment, beyond the kingdom that he had constructed for himself, a kingdom he was about to lose. So if you're like me, when you hear the story 
verses, passages from God's word would probably pop into your mind. Maybe Matthew 16, 19, and 20. And this flows perfectly into what Jesus is teaching here. Matthew 6, 19, and 20. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is not just about material wealth and resources. It is about that, but it's about more. It's about us recognizing and building our lives around what matters to strategically invest in the future of eternal significance, our time, our energy, our thoughts, our habits, our relationships. Where do we focus them? What do you, what do I, what do we invest our lives in? If you're a Christian, what do you invest your life into? Not just material resources, but yes, those things, all of you. Verse 9 reminds us, those things that allow people to welcome us into eternal dwellings, not just in the temporary dwellings, not just to think about where we're going to sleep tonight or next week as this dishonest manager was, but beyond that, eternal dwellings, not just the material things. Jesus says, think about something more, something beyond that. Do you invest yourself regularly, consistently, completely in things that promote gospel life change in yourself and in those around you. Here's a test to tell you if you're wondering, how do I even evaluate that? Think about those closest to you. A best friend, a spouse, children, grandchildren, uh, co-workers that you interact with closely every day. Are you investing in those closest relationships with gospel life change? Think about that this week. Would that be something that would be readily apparent in how you're living out your life, how your habits, your relationships, your words, your actions, your emotions, your, your practices, all the regular parts of your life, those little things every day, would those add up into equaling gospel life change in you and in those closest around you? That's a barometer you can look at. Jesus is saying, Everyone in the world around you is worried about their 401k or their money or their lives or all these other things. But he says, you, Christian, if you're a Christian, he's talking to us. He's saying, if you're a child of the light, if you belong to that spiritual kingdom, you are called to invest yourself into something more, something that has eternal significance and creates life change. That we value the resources, the opportunities that we have been given, that have been given to us, the good news of the gospel, so that we share that with others, so that they are spiritually indebted, that one day we would see them in heaven. You may think, how in the world could I know that? Here's the thing. Those ripples of God's sovereign grace, God's almighty and powerful the littlest thing you can do can have an impact on someone's life and they can have an impact on, someone's else, on someone else's life and someone else's life beyond that. And before you know it, someone's life has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and you and I don't even know it. And yet someday, when our time on earth is done, when all these temporal, material things are gone, how we have used them will determine how many people we may see waiting for us as we enter into eternity. Have you ever 
stopped and thought about that. Every little thing, every little thing. What are you saying yes to in your life, even in the smallest details, the most practical things that you think, these have nothing to do with God's kingdom, but you're discounting what God can do with every little bit that you give to him, every little bit you invest in the kingdom of God, of yourself, of your material resources, of your heart. Look at verses 10 and 11. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? What matters the most? Lots of times we say, you know, I'll, I'll catch up on this later. I don't know if that's your, your tithe or your Bible reading or your prayer time or whatever it is, but we always say, I'll get to that later. And here we see that those habits, those disciplines, those little chunks of everyday life add up to draw us closer to God and his kingdom or more into building our own. That's what Jesus is reminding them. If you don't, if you don't think you're, you're faithful in these little things, how are you faithful in the large things? And if you're not faithful with your material wealth belonging to the kingdom of God, how is God, if you were looking for some miraculous, deep, spiritual, powerful moment where God comes down and says, Bob, I have a mission for you, or whatever it is, if you think that's going to happen, if you're not entrusted, trusting God with those little things in your life, God says, how am I going to entrust you? Jesus says, with the genuine, the powerful, the profound mountaintop experiences, we all wonder them. And yet, God's saying, in the everyday life, you're going to have those created, but you have to be faithful with the little things. Be faithful. Say yes to God in the little things. Are we doing that? What matters the most to us? Are we saying yes in the little things? Or are we saying yes to ourselves? in our own temporary desires. And Jesus reminds them of one more thing in verse 12. He says, If you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? We have to be faithful in the little things because in understanding who God is and that we're a part of his kingdom, that we are his manager and he is the master, he's entrusting us with all these resources None of this, friends, belongs to us. None of, none of this. You've been absent from this building, and maybe that's what God's teaching us in this COVID-19 crisis. None of this belongs to us. None of this. None of what you have at home. I don't know what you had before this crisis hit or where your bank account is now, but whatever you have, whatever you had, or whatever you will have, it doesn't belong to you. Whatever I have, whatever I had, whatever I will have, it doesn't belong to me. All of it. All of it belongs to God. And it has been entrusted to us as faithful managers, as stewards. We don't want to be dishonest. We don't want to be diabolical managers. We want to be faithful managers. And Jesus is telling us we must say yes to what he's about, to the mission he's given us. And that mission, friends, we know as his church is to make disciples. So many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they, they never asked God, they never sought God, they never listened to God. And yet what they loved, Jesus has told them, they're scoffing at him. He says, what you love is the problem. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. 
What friends are you saying yes to in every little decision? Are you saying yes to God in his kingdom? Are you serving him? Are you serving yourself? Do you see the means that God has given us as the end? The money that God entrusts to us as individual followers of Christ, as a church, the material things, those are all just vehicles. Those are all just tools to accomplish the gospel mission. That's what the church exists to do, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think God has stripped these other things away to remind us that we must focus ourselves in all that we have and all that we are to share the good news with other people that they would know Jesus Christ, that we would invest not in what's temporary, but what has eternal value so that we would see those people we've never met waiting for us as we enter into God's kingdom, waiting there at the gates of eternal significance. Who will be there to greet you, to greet me? Because of what we choose to do, what we discipline ourselves to do with every little decision, what we say yes to when we say yes to Jesus. And the older we get, the more we see it. These temporary things, they're going to pass away. They're not going to last. We need to invest our treasure in what's heavenly, not what will be taken out by moth and rust, not what's going to go away. Friends, that's the message here today, that we would in every way remember who we say yes to, what we say yes to, what we are saying yes to in our lives, what matters the most to you? What is at the center of your heart? What are you investing yourself in? Friends, who and what do we say yes to in our lives? Let's pray. Father, that we would understand what it means to belong to you, that we are your servants, that we're called. We are just temporary stewards, temporary managers of all that you've entrusted to us. And now, more than ever, sharing the good news of the gospel, whether we feel we have plenty or not, strategically, intentionally being about sharing the hope of Jesus Christ in our actions, our habits, our attitudes, our relationships, and yes, our material possessions as well. All of us belonging to you pushing that all to the center of the table, saying, I'm going to bet it all on building a future where I will be welcomed in to eternal dwellings in God's kingdom, that we would know what it means, that we would connect, love, and serve, that we would understand we have a witness in who we are and how we live and what we say and what we post online and how we spend our money and all those things, that we are not building an organization. We're not building a kingdom for ourselves. We're not building an institution. We are building a gospel community that calls others to obedience, to look and act in love, to say yes to Jesus Christ. Make that the center of who we are and what we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.